0: All right, well, we're there in Matthew chapter 26, and Matthew 26 is the longest chapter in the book of Matthew, and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to preach through the entire chapter tonight, all right? We're going to break uh, this chapter down into two nights, and tonight we're just going to deal with the first 30 verses, and we'll do it as quickly as we can. Um, we won't spend too much time, I promise. In Matthew 26, if you remember last week, we ended Matthew 25, and for, Ma- for the chapters of 24 and 25, we kind of dealt with this idea of end times prophecy, and God, Jesus was explaining to us in the Olivet Discourse, the events of prophecy, and then in Matthew 25, we had other uh, parables that dealt with the idea of, of prophecy. and. Now we're kind of changing gears and, get, and just kind of going away from the teaching and preaching of Jesus and getting into just the, the last events of the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord. And we begin this uh, chapter here, and for those of you that are, that are taking notes or you like to take notes... Um, Point number one is this, we see the prophecy of his death. We see the the prophecy of his death. If you look at verse one, the Bible says this, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these things, he said unto his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Often in scripture we see Jesus trying to explain to his disciples that he was going to die. He's foretelling his own death, burial, and resurrection, and here we have one more example where he says to them, basically... Hey, you know that in a couple days I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be crucified. Now, they didn't really understand that now. They didn't really understand that till it happened. But he's he's prophesying to them and he's explaining to them. And this is, you know, sometimes we over we just read over these things and we kind of just don't really think about them. But you have to understand, this is why... Uh, it's a, you know, we, the foundation that we have in Christianity is based on the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's more than just that he died, was buried, and resurrected, but the fact that he knew he was going to die. In fact, the Bible says he laid down his life. And it wasn't something that caught Jesus off guard. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And here we see Jesus foretelling of his death. And really, it is Christ who sets into motion the plan of his burial. It's interesting how Matthew writes it, because in verse 2, the Bible says, you know that after two days, Jesus speaking, is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Verse 3 says this, then, and that word then is kind of alluding to, to the fact that only after Jesus had already announced it, and only after Jesus kind of gave the cue, and after Jesus said, okay, it's time, then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So you got to understand this. It only happened after Jesus was ready. Now, keep your finger there in Matthew uh, 26. Obviously that's, obviously, that's the text for tonight. But go with me real quickly to the book of Luke. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter number 4. Let me give you some examples. Luke chapter number 4. If you look at verse 28 in Luke 4, there were other times in the life of Jesus when they wanted to kill him. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny because later in Matthew 26, He says, Hey, I was with you in the temple. I was with you. I was in your midst and you never took me. But they actually did try to take Him and Jesus would not allow them because it wasn't the right time. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 28. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. And all they in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. This is after Jesus' sermon. He got done preaching and they got mad. That's why sometimes on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday night or on Wednesday night, I get done preaching and some of you are mad on your way out and you, you know people People sometimes make sure I know they're upset on their way out of the church. And I think to myself, well, I'm just, you know, I'm like Jesus, I guess, because Jesus got done preaching here and they were filled with wrath. That's what the Bible says. Look at verse 29. And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereunto their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Could you imagine that? To have Jesus preach a sermon and the crowd responded by taking him and taking him to this cliff and they want to throw him off a cliff headlong, the Bible says, to kill him. Now look at verse 30. But he, which is Jesus, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Now, I don't really understand what all of this means. I mean, to me, it kind of, you know, it's kind of like, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels were in the house with Lot, and and everybody was trying to get into the house, and the Bible says they blinded their eyes so that they could get out. Now, the Bible doesn't say here that they were blinded, but it seems like Jesus just kind of hit, well, in another passage, it tells us that he hit himself, and, and maybe, I don't know, I'm not saying he turned invisible or whatever, but he made it so that he was able to just passed through the midst of them and went his way. I mean, could you imagine this huge crowd, you know, this multitude, They got their, their focus is on one man. They grab one man. They're so mad. They're so angry. Can you believe he said that? Can you believe he preached that? I can't believe you did. And they take him off to this cliff and then they get to the cliff and they're like, where do you go? <laughs> you know, be, it's kind of silly. Uh, wh- who are we going to throw off? You know, it's, I mean, he just kind of passing through the midst of them, went his way. Go to John chapter 8. Let me give you another example. John chapter 8. I mean, I don't know how that happens, you know, it's like, you, you, you're holding Jesus, throw him off a cliff, all of a sudden, you know, it's your brother-in-law. You're like, what? How did this happen? John chapter 8, look at verse 59. John chapter 8, 59. Let me show you another example where they tried to kill Jesus, but it wasn't time. And Jesus did not allow them. you got to understand that. John chapter 8. And by the way, when you get to John, just put a bulletin or an insert or something in John, because we're going to come back to it throughout the, the sermon. In John chapter 8 and verse 59, the Bible says, Then took they up stones to cast at him. So here Jesus is preaching another sermon, making makes statements they don't like, and they actually pick up stones, and they're going to throw these stones at Jesus till he dies. They're so mad at what he's saying. Then took they up the stones to cast at him. Notice, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. so I'm not exactly sure what Jesus is doing to hide himself from these people, but when it wasn't when if they were trying to kill him and Jesus knew it wasn't time, but he made sure that he just kind of got away and did it. So you got to understand this: when Jesus says, "Hey, you know that in two days they're going to betray me and they're going to put me to death," he's basically giving the permission. He's saying, "And I'm okay with that because it's time. It's time now to for me to go to the cross to uh, be buried to resurrect." So you need to understand that it was the plan of Jesus. You're there in John chapter 8, right? Uh, go over to John chapter 10 just real quickly. John chapter 10, look at verse number 17. Like I said, keep your place there in John because we're going to leave it, but then we're going to come back to it a, a few times during the service. Uh, John chapter 10, and look at verse number 17. Notice what Jesus said. John chapter 10 and verse 17. Therefore, that my Father loved me, notice what he says, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. Do you see that? No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. So we see here that they didn't take they didn't take the life from Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father and he laid down his life. No man taketh it from me. And he says, not only do I lay it down, but he says, because I lay it down, he said, I have the ability to, I have the power to lay it down and then I have the power to take it back again. And by the way, that's why we're followers of Jesus Christ. Because if a man can not only predict his death, burial, the resurrection, but by his own power resurrect himself. And we know that there's other passages that say he was resurrected by the hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We understand that. That's why they're all God. But if a man can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then resurrect himself, then we just kind of just do whatever he says. You know what I mean? If he says believe on him, then we just believe on him. Uh, Because, you know, so you got to understand, Jesus laid down his life. It was his plan. He prophesied his own death. Go back to Matthew 26, look at verse 4. Let me just show you something real quickly. Even though Jesus laid down his life, this was still a satanic plan, or influenced by Satan. And I want to give you a few things to think about, and then I'll give you something else later on as we go further into the text. But look at Matthew 26, look at verse 4. Remember the priests and everybody got together to decide how they're going to take the life of Christ. Matthew 26 and verse 4, and consulted that they might take Jesus, I want you to make note of these words, by subtlety and kill him. I want you to notice that th- this was a satanic plan, and, and later uh, you know, in, in, in later on I'll show you even further uh, you know, explicitly spelled out in scripture that this was Satan was behind all of this. But here we get a hint of Satan's plan, because the Bible says that they took him by subtlety, uh, and uh, it says that they might take Jesus by subtlety, and kill So I want you to make note, and if you like to take notes, or you like to write in your Bible, I'd underline these words, subtlety, and I'd underline this word, kill. And keep your finger there in Matthew 26, go to Genesis chapter number 3. In the Old Testament, first book of the uh, Bible, Genesis chapter 3, look at verse number 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, I just want to show you something real quickly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that word subtle means to do something cunningly or craftly, to be deceitful, to accomplish a plan by deceiving someone. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Genesis 3.1, remember the story of God, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, remember when Eve was deceived by the serpent, Genesis 3.1, the Bible says, now the serpent, now we know that the serpent is Satan, right? In Revelation, we're told he's the serpent, he's the dragon, he's Satan, the devil. The Bible says, now the serpent, which is Satan, notice what it says, was more subtle than any beast of the field. Do you see that? So we know Satan is subtle. And these people, when they want to take Jesus, and the rest of the verse says, which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not, deal, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. All right, go to John chapter number 8. Now, do you have your finger in Matthew 26? Because I want you to see, they were going to take him by subtlety. And when you see that word subtly, just think Satan, because we know that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. But not only that, they wanted to take him by subtlety and kill him so they want to take him by subtlety by subtlety and they want to kill Jesus go to John chapter number 8 go back to John chapter 8 you're, you're in John 10 you were in John 8 go back to John 8 real quickly look at verse 44 notice what Jesus said about Satan about the devil John chapter 8 and verse 44 John eight forty four. the Bible says ye are of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do now notice what Jesus said about Satan he was a murderer do you see that? He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So whenever the Bible describes for us Satan, it describes him in this way. He's a liar... He's subtle. He is deceitful. And He's a murderer. He will kill you. And here we see, when Jesus, when they were planning to crucify Him, God makes sure to use these words in Matthew 26. You can go back to Matthew 26, verse 4. He makes sure to tell us when they planned their attack on Jesus, they did it subtlety to kill Him. Kind of letting us know and hinting us into and cluing us into the fact that even though Jesus obviously is God and he understood everything, this was a plan uh, that Satan was behind. Uh, Matthew 26, look at verse 5. And they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, Point number one in Matthew 26, we see the prophecy of his death. Again, for those of you that are taking notes, that would be verses one through five. We see this idea of Jesus prophesying his death. If you look at verse six, we get into point number two. Point number two is this. We not only see the prophecy of his death in verses one through five, but we also see the preparation of his death. Notice verse six. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at me. So here we have a woman coming to Christ. Now keep in mind, this is shortly before he's betrayed and he'll be put to death. And she comes to Jesus and she has this alabaster box of, the Bible says, very precious ointment. Now let me give you a cross-reference. Go with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is a parallel passage to Matthew 26. Mark chapter 14, and let me sh- give you just, Mark gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on here. Mark chapter 14, if you look at verse number 3, Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, the Bible says this. Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark fourteen three. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at me, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment and spikenard very precious notice and she broke the box and poured it on his head now the idea is this that we get from this passage is that 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 very precious ointment. And in other passages, we're told, it, it's a huge amount. And that very precious ointment that she brings to Jesus, that pictures that the, the believer. That pictures you and I. And the idea is that just like she brought this very precious ointment, this alabaster box, and she brought it to Christ, and she poured it on His head, and literally, something that was extremely expensive, she wasted it on Jesus. The idea is that you and I, as believers, ought to be willing to, to sacrifice and give ourselves willingly to Jesus Christ. And notice, if you look at Mark 14, 3, it says, She break the box. See, to offer yourself to Christ, you must come broken and empty of yourself. To come to Jesus, you must be willing to say, You know what? I'll I'll empty myself. I'll be broken. I'll humble myself. And I'll waste myself on Christ. I want you to notice, go go back to Matthew 26. Notice the response. Because here's what you got to understand. Sometimes people get, you know, somebody preaches something, you read the Bible, you start getting on fire for God, you start realizing, man, I need to do more of my life, I need to give of my life, I need to sacrifice, like we talked last week about the parable of the talents, I need to leverage the resources that God has given me to be able to use it for Christ and for the kingdom of God, and you begin to start doing weird things, like showing up for church on a Wednesday night, and your family says, you're going to go to church again? will not you just say on Sunday? And you went back on Sunday night, I saw you. You know, you start doing odd things like giving up a, a, a Saturday or a, or a weeknight or something to go out and knock on doors and invite people to church and preach the gospel. You start doing weird things like giving 10% of your income to a church. Why would you do that? And you start doing all these things because you realize that my life is like this, uh, this alabaster box and I just want to break it and sacrifice it to Jesus and pour myself on. But please understand, when you do that, When you decide to just come to God, I'm not talking about salvation, but I'm talking about present yourself, break yourself, empty yourself, for the glory of God. Here's the response that you'll get. Matthew 26, look at verse 8. But when the disciples saw it... Now, now let me ask you a question. Disciples, good guys or bad guys? Those are good guys. Now, there was one bad guy in there, and we'll talk about him in a second. But generally, good guys. But when his disciples saw it, notice... They had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? They said, Why would he waste that ointment? Why would he pour it on Jesus? For the ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now I want you to understand something. And let me just give you an example. Uh, go, go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, just real quickly towards the end of the New Testament, you got 1 uh, 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus, you find those T-books. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me just give you one example real quickly. 1st Timothy, you start giving yourself to God, you start giving of your life to God, you start giving, you know, you start realizing, oh, this is what God wants me to do, and I want to follow God's will in my life, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and there are people in your life, good people, friends, family, other Christians, other so-called disciples of Jesus, may look at you and say, that's such a waste, why would you do that, that's such a waste, you shouldn't do that, you can use that in other resources, you can do that in other areas, you know, and, and uh, here's here's just one example. First Timothy chapter five. Look at verse fourteen. First Timothy five fourteen. The Bible says this. First Timothy five fourteen. The Bible says, "I will therefore," and this is the Apostle Paul speaking. But we understand he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he says, "Here's here's my will," but he's speaking for God. He says, "Here's God's will for uh, the individuals he's talking about." He says, "I will therefore that the younger women marry." Bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So here's what Paul says. What is God's will for the life of a young woman? What does God want a young woman to do? If if God was in charge of the lives of young women, what would they do? Well, here's what they would do, according to 1 Timothy 5, 14. They would marry, bear children, guide the house. And you know what happens is, you know, my, my wife and I, we talk about this often because it happens so much in people's lives that we know and and, I mean people in our church have told us stuff like this and here's what happened a young lady will get saved or or get right with God or begin to realize man God's will for my life is to marry bear children and guide the house and then a young lady will say I'm gonna I'm gonna stay home and raise my kids because that's what God's will is for my life and here's what people will say to women like my wife and women like also to women in our church they'll say oh you're wasting your life away that's such a waste Because the world thinks like you should grow up and be Hillary Clinton, you know. You should grow up and be Sarah Palin. You should grow up and go get a career. You should go make lots of money. You should, and you're wasting your life just you know being a stay at home mom. But what does God say? He says, "I will therefore that the young women bear, marry, bear children." Guide the house. Now here's what you know, and people will look down at my wife. I remember one time we were we were at uh, I don't forget what we were doing, buying a house or something, and they were like, you know, what's your occupation? I was, I was I'm in the United States Air Force, and um, they asked my wife, what's your occupation? And she says, well, I I'm a stay-at-home mom, you know. And the guy's like, Oh, you you stay home, like like that's not important, you know, like like that's not gonna you know uh, impact eternity, you know. And you gotta understand this. I, when I was in the United States Air Force, you know what I did? I worked on air conditioners. I, I went out, I went to, you know, Qatar, 115 degrees, and I worked on an air conditioner for four months, and I would fix it, and they would send it out, and then bring me another one that was broken, and I'd fix it, and they'd send it out. They'd bring me another one that was broken, and I'd fix it, and we'd send it out, and they'd bring me another one that was broken. You said, what impact did you do when you're in the military? I don't know. I kept an officer comfortable so that he could sleep comfortably while the rest of us were at 150 degrees. But you know what my wife did during that time? She took ever-living souls and taught them the Bible and taught them the Word of God. And every day she gets up and, and, and influences as she's homeschooling them. She teaches them God's Word and she teaches them to read and she teaches them to write. And, and you know those, those air conditioners that I fixed. I bet you right now they're on a flight line somewhere broken. <laughs> but those kids, she'll impact eternity forever. But see, here is what the world will say: Oh, you should go become. You should go get a career, and you should go. You could be the first woman president. Why would you want to be the first woman president when you could impact the life of a child? But here is what the world will say: The moment you give up your life, well, don't you know you could make more money not being a pastor? Trust me, I know I could make more money not being a pastor. Well, you can do it. Yeah, but your impact in eternity. Now, notice what the Bible says. Go back to Matthew twenty-six, because you got to understand this. This is what happens in Christianity. You start giving things up. You start saying, "No, I don't want to work on something." Well, don't you know you can make more money? But I want to serve God. But, but, but you're wasting your time. And you just got to understand when you give your life as a sacrifice. God, and you say, I will submit myself, I will break it, I will pour it off, the world will look at you, and sometimes good Christians will look at you and say, to what purpose is this waste? Why would you do that? You could have used that ointment. Notice, Matthew 26, look at verse 10. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, why trouble you the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always for in that, and by the way, do you know that ye have the poor always with you? I don't care what social programs and what welfare programs. Jesus said we will always have poor people around, all right? Now, I'm not saying don't help the poor, but just realize, we're not. you're never, war on poverty. You're never going to get rid of poverty. Jesus said, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always with you. Verse 12, for in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Notice verse 13. There I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her and here we are thousands and thousands of years later talking about this lady who took an alabaster box that she could have sold and fed you know a hundred poor people for a night but instead she chose to break it and pour it on Christ and, and here we are thousands of years later talking about the impact that she made so you gotta understand this I, I love the words of the song, only one life so soon shall pass, only what's done for Christ shall last. And you can go ahead and build businesses, and you can make money, and I can invest in this, and I can invest in that, but let me tell you something, what you do for Jesus Christ, the world will say, what a waste. Do you know what you could do with that 10% of your income? What a waste. Do you know what you could do with your Saturdays you give up? What a waste. Do you know what you could do if you got a better career? Do you know what you could do? And the, the world, and, and good people, good Christians will say, to what purpose is this waste? And Jesus says, hey, if you spend it on me, it'll last for eternity. But if you send it on the world, he said, no one will be talking about that. And he said, but this woman, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. So the question is this, where do you want to invest your time? Your precious ointment, your alabaster box that God has given you. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verse 4. John chapter 12 and verse 4. John twelve four. And by the way, I want, you know, we have, I don't know, five, six, seven homeschool moms and ladies that stay home. I want to encourage you ladies, don't let anybody make you feel like you're some sort of a second class citizen. You're doing the greatest, the, the greatest thing you could do with your life is what you're doing. Investing into those children. Giving your life for those children. And no job, and, no, you know, and these people, these, we have this feminist movement out there that says, cut your hair, go look like a man, go be like a man. Nuts to that. Give yourself to what God has called you to do. John chapter 12, look at verse 4. John chapter 12, verse 4. John 12, 4. You try homeschooling four kids and see if you're not, you know, oh, you don't work? <laughs> Are you joking? It'd be easier to go answer the phone somewhere. Then to raise four kids, 24 hours a day. Ask these ladies, when do you get, you get paid overtime? <laughs> When's your time off? When's your day off? When's your vacation? When do you get your two weeks? John chapter 12, look at verse 4. Now, now, look at what's actually behind this whole little argument. John chapter 12, verse 4. Here we find again another parallel passage. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas scary. Remember that guy? Simon's son, which should betray him. Now, Judas was the devil. Remember, he wasn't, he wasn't a believer. Verse 5. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence? Now, if you remember a few weeks back in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, we learned about men. Remember the laborers? They worked for a penny a day. They worked 12 hours for one penny. So we know one penny is one day's wages for an unskilled laborer. Uh, You know, what does an unskilled laborer make in one day? 80 bucks, 100 bucks. You get a guy to go work for you 12 hours. You know, you pay him 100 bucks for that day. Here we have 300 pence. So this is a lot of money. It's a lot. This is an expensive ointment that's being, you know, this could have fed a lot of people. Now notice what Judah said. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now look at verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put there. See, he did not really care about selling it for the poor. He wanted to sell it for the poor, you know, quote, unquote, for the poor so that the money could go into the bag that he was in charge of and he could get his cut out of it because he's just, you know, covetous and greedy. Look at verse 7. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing she hath kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? Jesus knew that Judas was the devil. Jesus knew. He said in different passages, He says, I know that who doesn't believe on me. I know that one of you is going to betray me. And this whole time, Jesus is showing grace to Judas. Jesus is showing mercy to Judas. Jesus is allowing, <coughs> excuse me, chance after chance to Judas. And have you noticed this in the Bible? Have you noticed that in the Bible, Jesus is constantly rebuking Peter? Have you noticed that? I mean, Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's always saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you need to, you know, what's wrong with you, Peter? Why would you say that, Peter? That's not what I want, Peter. And we'll see Jesus, you know, rebuking other disciples for things that they did. But this is the only time in Scripture That we see Jesus specifically looking at Judas and just saying, "No, Judas, you're wrong," because Judas is the one. All the disciples, he kind of got all the disciples riled up, but he was the one that said, "Hey, I, you know, we should have spent this money different way." And here Jesus comes and says, "Judas, you know what? You're you're wrong about that. You know what she did was right. Let her alone. Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing, she hath kept this. For the poor, you have always with you." But me ye have not always. Now notice how, how Judas responds. Go back, go back to Matthew 26. So you understand all these passages, the, the Gospels are written uh, you know, in a way where we kind of have to compare them to get all the different details. So here's what happens. Judas gets rebuked by Jesus. And in a very nice way, I mean, he doesn't say, Judas, you devil, you're going to betray me. He says, hey, look, leave her alone. She did the right thing. But Judas is the one who's heading this thing up. Now notice Matthew 26. Look at verse 14. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then. Do you see that word then? Now the context of that word then is, is after. After what? After Judas riled up all the disciples about this woman spending this money on Jesus. After Jesus rebuked Judas and said, hey, Judas... No, you're wrong. Let her alone. She's fine. I'm glad she did it. For my barrel. she did it. Then, Matthew 26, 14, one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest. You see that? And said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You know what I've learned as a pastor, and I've only pastored for four years, not very long, but you know what I've learned in four years of pastoring? People love it. There's something about our pride and our flesh that loves it. When pastor's preaching hard and coming down and saying, Thus saith the Lord God, and you know there's someone in church that that applies to, our flesh just loves that. Get them. They need that. Right? You may not say that. Some of you guys say it. You You shouldn't. Yeah, pastor. You know. You listening? <laughs> we love that, but you know when we don't love it? When it's coming right down to us. And here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've noticed. There are some of us that are Peters. There are some of us that are Matthews. There are some of us that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up, and you get rebuked, and it kind of hurts. And you're like, "Man, I messed up. Man, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that." But we kind of just keep going. But whenever, you know, whenever there's an individual, and and I know that something's preached, and I don't try to do this on purpose. I mean, we're preaching Matthew 26. I don't know if you noticed, but we've been preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through Matthew for like the last year, okay? So it's not like I'm planning these things out. But I've noticed, if there's something in the scripture that kind of hits someone, if that individual just gets, I can't, I'm not coming back. I, I think to myself, I wonder if they were saved. They might have been a Judas, because here's the thing. The whole time Peter's getting rebuked, 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 rebuked. Judas is just kind of like, and the first time that Jesus says, hey, no, Judas, you're wrong. Leave her alone. She's okay. What does he do? Then, the Bible says, he went out, and he went to the chief priest. What will you give me? I will deliver. He's pouting. He's mad. Don't correct me. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. And said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted him with 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So honestly, when you get offended, when, when we step on your toes, you ought to check your spirit and realize, wh- wh- why, why am I so mad? I mean, is it not the word of God? Does the word of God not have the right to correct us? Is that not why we're here? Is that not why we're studying God's Word? Not just for information, but transformation, to become better, to realize, man, I was wrong about that. I was thinking wrongly about that. I need my mind renewed. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the Word of God? Is that not why we're here? So when the Bible corrects you and you're mad, you say, I'm not... You've got to check your spirit. Why do you feel that way, Judas? You say, are you saying I'm a Judas? All I'm saying is this. Jesus had one devil in 12... So I figure, my odds, there's one or two devils here. (laughs) I said, number one, we see the prophecy of his death. Verses one through five, for those of you taking notes. I said, number two, we see the preparation of his death. That would be verses six through sixteen, for those of you taking notes. Number three, let me just quickly, I got ten minutes. Number three, we see the picture of his death. The picture of his death. Look at verse seventeen. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him. Now I want to I show you something. I want you to cue in on something about the picture of Christ's death. Look down at verse number 17, the last phrase of verse 17. They asked him a question, the disciples did. They asked this question. Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the... And let's just read the last word of that verse together, all of us. Passover. Do you see that? where wilt thou that we prepare to eat the, let's read it together, Passover. Passover. Okay. So here's a question. Where do you want us to eat the Passover, Jesus? Okay. Now, do you remember the Passover? I'm running out of time, so I don't have time. Remember the Passover? Moses brought the children of Israel out. Remember the ten plagues, the last plague when God killed the firstborn of the son? Remember they had to slay a lamb they had to take the blood they had to put the blood on the doorpost as the angel of death came down anyone that he saw the blood applied to he would pass over that house anyone that did not have the blood applied he would go into that house and judgment would come upon that house and all that was a picture of Christ a picture of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world and in the same way the, the only way to have the judgment of God pass over you is if the blood of Christ is on the doorpost of your heart that's the picture of the Passover Now, here they're celebrating the Passover, and the question is this, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover, right? Look at verse 18, he said, go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, the master saith, my time is at hand, I will keep the, let's just read it together so we understand the context, Jesus said, I will keep the what? Passover, do you see that? Let's read it one more time, I will keep the Passover. Passover at thy house with my disciples. Verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. They made ready what? The Passover. Okay, is it pretty clear from the context that Jesus, the disciples, what do they think they're celebrating? The Passover. Jesus acknowledges we're going to celebrate the what? Passover. They get to the place, and, and in other passages, as they're sitting out to eat, Jesus says with desire, I've desired to eat the Passover. With you, From the context, it's pretty clear. What are they doing? They're celebrating the Passover. Now, here's what happens. As they all sit down in their minds, including Jesus, they've all proclaimed, we're celebrating the Passover. We're doing the Passover. We're going to take over the Passover. Jesus institutes what we know today as the Lord's Supper. You say, well, I thought they were doing the Passover. Here's what you got to understand. The Lord's Supper is the New Testament continuation of the Passover. The Passover is basically unleavened bread, juice, and a lamb. The Lord's Supper is the same thing, minus the lamb. Why is there no lamb? Because we don't sacrifice the lamb because the lamb has already been sacrificed. And the Lord's Supper is just a continuation of the Passover. In fact, They said, hey, where do you want to eat the Passover? We'll go to this one place and tell this guy we're going to eat the Passover there. They get there. Okay, we're ready to have the Passover. We desire desire to have this Passover. Let's eat the Passover. Ready, guys? Let's go. And then he institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper. But in the context, it's the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. The Lord's Supper is a new testament continuation of the Passover. Now, you say, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal? You know, out of all the controversial things we preach around here, out of all the weird things that we talk about, you know, the number one thing I get most criticism, most emails about, most people just upset about is this teaching right here that the New Testament, you know, you, don't you think like, man, when he preaches about the sodomites, he preaches about abortion, he preaches about birth control or whatever. Don't you think all those things would be like the things that people would like get mad about. The number one thing I get criticized for, get emails about, get people telling me they don't like about my preaching, is when I talk about the fact that the Lord's Supper is the New Testament continuation of the Passover. And here's why. Because dispensationalists, now I understand that God dealt with different people at different times differently. I, I get that Adam and Eve weren't the same as New Testament believers, but dispensationalists hate to, when you point out the fact That the Lord's Supper is a New Testament continuation of the Passover. Here's why. Because they don't like the connection between the New Testament believer and the Old Testament Jew. They don't want you to connect those. They want you to say, no, no, no. The Old Testament Jews, do you understand the Old Testament Jews were believers? Just like New Testament believers? And we've been given promises just like they were given promises. And the promises of Abraham, according to Galatians, were fulfilled in the seed. Not seeds, but in the seed, Christ. And when you're in Christ, you enter into that. And, and when you say, well, well the, I mean, the Old Testament Passover is continued in the New Testament. We just call it the Lord's Supper. No, I can't believe that you would say that. Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. Because Jesus said, hey, let's take the Passover. Let's eat the Passover. You guys ready for the Passover? I really wanted to eat this Passover with you guys. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper. And never in the passage does he ever call it the Lord's Supper. Paul later told us that terminology. We'll look at it. But as far as Jesus was concerned, he was taken up the Passover. Now let me give you some things about the Passover. Number one, the Lord's Supper, Passover, whatever, the New Testament continuation of Passover, the Lord's Supper, is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. Look at verse 20. And when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did he, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas said, uh, and then Judas which betrayed them answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou, shalt, thou hast said. Now, just real, real quickly, go to John chapter 13. Just to get the context, I, I got four minutes, I got to finish this fast. So let me just show you the verses will be done. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Just so you can get the entire context of of what's going on here. John chapter 13. Remember I told you to keep your place in John? John 13. Look at verse 26. John 13, 26. John 13, 26. Jesus answered, He it is. Remember, they're asking, who's going to betray you? Who's going to betray you? Who's going to betray you? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the Sop, remember I told you this was a satanic influence thing? Notice, and after the Sop, verse 27, Satan entered into him, okay? Judas was not saved. He was possessed by Satan himself, son of perdition. Only two people in the Bible are ever referred to as son of perdition, and they were also both possessed by Satan, Judas Iscariot, and then the future coming Antichrist, And after the stop, Satan entered into him. Remember, this was all satanic plan. Then Jesus said unto him, That thou doest too quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, remember that, that Jesus had said unto him, by those things which ye have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Verse thirty. He, Judas Iscariot, then having received the salt, notice, went immediately out, and it was night. Now, notice, if you continue reading the context, and John is interesting because the events that happen over two or three periods before the death of Christ, you know, are, are t- go over multiple, multiple chapters in the book of John. It gives us the most detail of those few. Uh, hours there but if you continue they had the they had the lord's supper after so notice jesus knew the one guy that wasn't saved and jesus sent him out before they partook of the lord's supper do you understand that the lord's supper is only for believers and when we take the lord's supper we try to make it special and nice and we'll, we'll announce it and all those things but let me tell you something When we take the Lord's Supper, that's not the time to just start inviting a bunch of people and, you know, it's not, you know, it's not Easter Sunday, you know what I mean? We're not pushing a big day. It's not anniversary Sunday and we're trying to break 100 or 150 or whatever. It's not the time to start inviting a bunch of unbelievers because the Lord's Supper is for believers. And in fact, Jesus, the one guy he knew wasn't saved, he said, hey, here's the stop, go do what you got to do, but get out of here because we're about to take the Lord's Supper, it's only for believers and you're not saved. And Judas went off his way. Now go back to Matthew 26, look at verse 26. Just real quickly, this should be reviewed for some of you, uh, most of you. Matthew 26, look at verse uh, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Okay, now keep your finger there Matthew 26. Just real quickly, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is the Lord's Supper passage. This is where we learn about communion and learn about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, look at verse 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. First Corinthians eleven 23. 1 Corinthians eleven 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 says... For I received of the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which was broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper at Verity Baptist Church, if you've ever done it with us, most of you have, some of you have not done it with us yet when we take the lord's supper you know what we do is we actually take bread and we actually rip it apart and break it i grew up in church where every time we took the lord's supper they gave you this tiny little perfectly cut you know like like a tic tac or something but it was like a piece of bread you know that doesn't really illustrate the idea because the purpose of him taking bread and breaking it is he's saying, "Hey, just the way this bread's getting ripped apart and broken, that's what my that's how my body was ripped apart. That's how my body's going to be broken." There's a picture there of the, so when we take the Lord's Supper, not only do we try to not invite unbelievers to it, but we also physically take bread, we rip it apart, we break it to represent the broken body of Christ. Go back to, keep your finger there, First Corinthians 11, go back to Matthew 26, look at verse 27. seven. First, Keep your finger, First Corinthians 11, go Matthew 26, verse 27. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not... Drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink the new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 25. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. When we take the Lord's Supper at Verity Baptist Church, here's what we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. After the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had stopped saying, this, is, this cup is the new test of my blood. This do ye as as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper, we physically have a jug of grape juice up here. Okay, We're not Catholics, not alcohol. It's just juice, all right? And we take that and we pour it into cups and we pass it amongst each other. Why? Because the pouring of the blood represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the picture. Are you there in 1 Corinthians 11? Look at verse 23. What's the purpose of all this? Why do we do all this? He said, Pastor, I was taught that when you eat the bread, it turns into the flesh of Christ in your mouth as you're chewing it up. Okay, that's called um, cannibalism. All right, that's weird. Okay, that's not what the Bible says. First Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. First Corinthians eleven verse twenty three. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and take it, a- and said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Make note of this phrase. Underline it if you like to underline in your Bible. This do in remembrance of me. Do you see that? Look at verse twenty five. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it. Notice in remembrance of. Me. Look at verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Do you see that? You show the Lord. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to picture, is to represent, is to help us remember what happened to Christ. What happened to Christ? His body was broken. His blood was shed for our sins and for your sins. It's, it's not it's not that it turns into his body, okay? People say, well, he said I'm the bread, and he said that if you eat my food. Look, Jesus said a lot. Jesus also said he was a door, okay? Jesus also said that he was the shepherd. I mean, Jesus said, he said a lot of things. He used a lot of illustrations, but he's, what he's teaching here is that the idea is that these things represent it. Now, uh, let me explain to you when when we do the Lord's Supper at Verity Baptist Church. Because uh, sometimes people ask me. A lot of you will ask. Some of you have asked me. When do you do it? And I want to just try to explain to you. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. Now we're Baptists, all right? Okay. What that means is, and we're independent Baptists. That what that means is, we're not part of a denomination. We're, we don't. We're not connected to anybody. We. The Bible is the authority. The Word of God is the authority of this indigenous church so what we do is when we've got a matter of faith or practice we go to our king james bible we read the bible we see what it says and then whatever it says to do that's what we do okay and when it doesn't specifically tell us what to do then we try to find a pattern in scripture to follow because if it doesn't specifically tell us when to do something then we want to just try to do it the most biblical way possible does that make sense so there are some churches that will take the lord's supper once a month there are some churches that take it once a week. There are some churches that take it once a quarter. There are some churches that take it, you know, on New Year's some, or whatever. The first year the the first Sunday of the year or the last Sunday of the year. Okay, now, I, and please understand this. I don't have a problem with any of that. People want, you know, the beauty of being an independent Baptist church is that we're independent. So the independent Baptist church down the street can do whatever they want because their authority is not Verity Baptist Church. Their authority is the Word of God. All right, and they will stand before God for what they do. I'm, all I'm doing is explaining to you why we do it the way we do it. Here's why. First Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Notice what Paul said. I'm I, what I received from the Lord is what I'm going to give you. Okay. He said, here's, uh, he, he's saying here's what Jesus did." So I'm just going to tell you what he did and what he did. That's what I'm going to deliver unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Okay. So let me ask you a question. When did Jesus partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, the first Sunday of every month, that's just when Jesus did it, you know. He always took the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday once every 3 months, that's when Jesus took the Lord's Supper on the last Sunday of the year Jesus always took the Lord's Supper on when did he do it? He did it the same night in which he was betrayed. Now we know that he died on Passover. So he did it the night before because obviously he was the lamb that would be crucified. But what did Jesus call it? Passover. How often did Jesus do it? Once a year. Do you understand what I'm saying? So at Verity Baptist I'm not telling you it's wrong for other churches to do it. I don't really care what other churches do. I'm all for other churches doing whatever they think is right to do. I'm just explaining to you. We do it at Verity Baptist Church the week of Easter. Why? Because on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that three days and three nights before that, he would have died. And since we're taking that week to remember his death, then we go ahead and take the Lord's Supper the Wednesday night Oh, of, that di- of that time to remember the sacrifice that Jesus did. And we do it once a year because Jesus did it once a year. Jesus didn't do it every week. Now let me talk about this for as often clause because people often bring this up to me. First Corinthians 11.25 after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had uh, supped, saying, this cup is the new testament of my blood, this do ye, notice what he says, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come, people will say, well, you know, it's not wrong, and look, I'm not telling you it's wrong for any other church, I'm not blasting any other church, I don't really care what any other church does, we're independent Baptists, okay? But people say to me, well, it says that as often as you, so you can do it as often as you'd like. If I'd like to do it three times a week, we can do it as often as you'd like. If that's how you want to observe and interpret that, that's I'm okay with that. But here's what you're going to understand. The context of 1 Corinthians 11, and I don't have time to preach through it. You just got to study it out. Your own. The context is this. Paul is correcting the church at Corinth because they were coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper. But they were not doing it to remember the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. They were doing it as a meal. They were doing it as, oh, the church is buying dinner tonight. It's Lord's Supper night. And they were coming together to eat and Paul was correcting that and saying, hey, don't come to the Lord's Supper just to eat. Don't come just because you're hungry. This isn't what it's about. It's about the death. It's about the, 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 the broken body. It's about the, the shed blood. We do it in remembrance. And here's what Paul is saying. As often as you eat this bread this, and, sh- and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. He said, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I don't believe he's saying, just do it as often as you like. I believe what he's saying is, when you do it, Make sure you do it in remembrance of me. Not, you know, for a meal. It's not a potluck. As often as you do it, when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Now listen to me. I'm not against other churches. I don't really care. I'm just trying to explain to you why we do it, how we do it, because it's a question that I'm often, often asked about. It's a picture. There's two ordinances that picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One is the Lord's Supper. One is baptism. Neither one is needed for salvation. Neither one will grant you anything with God. It's just picturing what he did on the cross for us. So in this passage we have number one, the prophecy of his death, Matthew 26 verses 1 through 5. We have the preparation of his death, Matthew 26 verses 6 through 16. And then we have the picture of his death, Matthew 26 verses 17 through 30. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father,